Romans chapter 11. We'll begin reading at verse 25. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. And if you're towards the back, Pastor John has some Bibles. If you're towards the front, there's some on the front platform. But concluding chapter 11 in this portion of Romans where Paul has been focusing on his countrymen, the Jews. You recall in the first eight chapters, as you know, if you've been with us on Sunday mornings going through Romans, or if you've studied the book yourself, that he gives us the gospel. That's the whole theme of the book of Romans. And Paul tells us in chapters 1, 2, and 3 our need for the gospel because none of us are righteous, no, not one. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So there's a need for every man and every woman to be forgiven of sin. We have needed the gospel. And then chapters 3, 4, and 5, we saw the provision of the gospel, that it comes through faith in Jesus Christ because he is our propitiation. In other words, our satisfaction is for sin as he went to the cross and as he died for our sins, shedding his blood. And as we come to him, he is our uh, means of forgiveness. He is the one that was put into a grave and he rose again, proven that he's the son of God. The tomb is empty there in Jerusalem. And so we have justification, or that is being declared righteous by faith in him. We cannot earn that salvation. We cannot keep the law or religiousness to try to earn salvation. It is, comes by faith alone because there's nothing that we can do in and of ourselves to be saved. It's not about religiousness because our sin has already declared us guilty. That's what Paul was writing. He said, listen, the standard of God is perfection. And since we have broken his law, which is perfect, which is good, we're all guilty. So the law is not to, you know, try to make us holy. The law declares that we're not holy. So it comes by turning to him and recognizing our need for forgiveness and to surrender our lives to Jesus Christ, who is truly Lord and Savior. And then we saw the benefits and the blessings of, of justification as we walk in the Spirit. It's called sanctification in chapters 6, 7, and 8. And in that, we saw that we are dead to sin, we're dead to the law, and we're joined to another Jesus Christ. We walk in the Spirit, and we have this spirit of adoption that we can cry out, Abba, Father. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and there's no separation from his love. So as Paul's given this life-changing, incredible theology in the first eight chapters, he then in chapter 9, as you know if you've been with us on Sunday mornings, he turns towards his countrymen. And as he turns to his fellow Jews, he begins to express his grief and sorrow because for the most part, they had rejected Jesus as their Messiah. And, and Paul, as he would explain in chapter 9, that you had the benefits, you, you had the blessings, you were sovereignly chosen, you had the adoptions, you had you know, the covenant, you had the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. But then traveling into chapter 10, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness, which comes by what? Faith in Jesus Christ, seeking to establish their own righteousness. That is, you're trying to establish righteousness through the law, the law of Moses, by the sacrifices, uh, all of that. 
you have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Jesus Christ has become a stumbling stone for you rather than the chief cornerstone. And today there are people that they try to come to God in their own righteousness. Hey, I'm a good person. I've gone to church. I was baptized in the church. I was raised in a Christian home. Those things don't save you. No church can save you. No baptism can save you. Only faith in Jesus Christ as we come to him, recognizing our need for him to for forgiveness and for salvation. So as we have spent then in chapter 11, the last couple of weeks, Paul then talks about his countrymen. He says that I continually pray for you, uh, that uh, I wish that I myself would be a curse. He had a, even though he was persecuted very heavily during his missionary journeys by his countrymen, he had a deep love for them. He had a concern for them. He prayed continually for them. But then in chapter 11, he says, as he talks about their future, has God cast away his people? He says, certainly not, in the strongest of terms. And the promises, as we've been talking about, of the Old Testament of restoring Israel is going to come to pass. And that's what we're going to see. That's going to be reiterated once again as we pick up our text at verse 25. God's not cast them away. And even though blindness has come in part, to Israel, uh, as we begin our study, there will be a day when all of Israel is going to be saved. So there is no replacement of Israel and the covenant that he made with them by the church. It's called replacement theology. There are those who come along and they say, hey, that Israel has forfeited, you know, uh, the promises of God that were made to them, uh, the covenant that God made with them in the Old Testament. And now we replace Israel. We're spiritual Israel, the church. There's nowhere in the scripture that it says that. And what we're going to see is that Paul's going to say, listen, God is going to keep his, his promise to them. And God has a plan for the church. He has a plan for Israel that we're going to talk about. But salvation all comes by faith in Jesus Christ. And God will be faithful to keep all those promises. Hundreds of verses of the Old Testament, sometimes whole chapters. And the nation's going to be restored. They were restored as a nation, as Ezekiel chapter 37. We have seen that come to pass in our own lifetime. In 1948, being out of their homeland for 2,000 years, and Ezekiel gives that vision of the dry bones that they come together and they, you know, live again. And, and they became a nation once again. 2,000 years being out of their original homeland, coming back, and they're alive nationally, but there's also spiritually going to be a restoring that will take place. They will recognize as their eyes are open that Jesus is their Messiah. And so Israel's rejection is not total. There's been a remnant over 2,000 years that have come to salvation in Jesus Christ. Paul writes that I'm one. I'm a testimony of that. I'm an Israelite from the tribe of Benjamin. And we also know that in the early church, as the gospel was preached there on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, that 3,000 got saved, and, and those were Jewish believers. So the early church was mostly made up of Hebrew Jewish you know, believers, and the gospel would then spread from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria 
to the ends of the earth. But over the last 2,000 years, there have been a remnant of those, their eyes have been opened up and they've come to Jesus. Matter of fact, first service, there was somebody visiting here from Pennsylvania, never been here before. We did this teaching and after the service, he said, you know, I'd like to talk to you. And he said, it was so refreshing um, to come to church and hear this teaching. I don't think it was an accident that I was here because I'm of Jewish descent. My wife and I were believers and most of the churches that, that we have been to, that they teach that God is through with the Jewish people, that there's going to be no restoration, and they teach replacement theology. So he was blessed to be here. He was one that his eyes have been opened up and his wife and come to salvation. So let's begin to look at what Paul says here as we close the chapter in verse 25 of Romans chapter 11, that for I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. Yet blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So Paul, when you read his epistles that he wrote uh, in the New Testament, uh, there's four things that he says that we're not to be ignorant of as Christians. First of all, when he was writing to the church at Thessalonica, he doesn't want us to be ignorant concerning the rapture of the church, the resurrection of believers. That's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, for you who like to jot down these notes. The second thing that he says that we're not to be ignorant of is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Concerning spiritual gifts, he writes, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren. The third thing is in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he tells us that we should not be ignorant of Satan's devices. And now he tells us here, as we come back to Romans chapter 11, the fourth thing that he doesn't want us to be ignorant of, and that is concerning the salvation of Israel. But when you look at those four things that we are told in Scripture not to be ignorant of, those are four areas where there can be all kinds of confusion in the church. There can be debate. There can be endless discussion. Pastors won't teach on, we're not going to teach on the rapture. You know, the, the rapture isn't true. The salvation of Israel, we're not going to teach on that. The spiritual gifts, we don't believe in some of the spiritual gifts. And those subjects are avoided oftentimes in the church today when Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant about these things. And I don't want you to be wise in your own opinion. And I have that kind of highlighted in my Bible because we live in a culture and we live in a society where people love to be wise in their own opinion. Well, I think this, and this is my opinion. Now, all of us have opinions, don't we? But you don't need me standing up here giving all my opinions to you. You need me to give you the word of God. And you see, we live, again, as I said, in a culture where we have endless opinions that are given through you know, talk radio, through endless cable TV networks. You have all the talking heads that are there giving their opinions about this, giving their opinions about that, and that can happen in the church. There's a lot of opinions that are given you know, in the church and leaderships in the church. We need to know what the Word of God has to say. You see, there's a difference between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. And we want godly wisdom. How do we get godly Godly wisdom, and that is through the Word of God, and not only knowing the Word of God, but having it worked out in our lives. So I don't want you to be ignorant. And here, back to our text, I don't want you to be ignorant that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles have come in. So what does Paul mean by that? He says, I tell you a mystery. And again, 
And many of you know that in the New Testament, when you read that word mystery, it's not used or defined in the way in how we define it or how we use that word. A mystery. Perhaps we think of a novel. Kind of whodunit kind of mystery. And you got to figure it out. Or perhaps we use it in, in everyday, you know, kind of, well, I'm dumbfounded. It's a mystery. It's a mystery what people do today. You know, it's a mystery how people think today. So in the scriptures, as we read this word mystery, it's used differently than the way that we use it. And Paul says, I, I tell you a mystery. It means that it is the truth that is now being revealed that we can understand. We know that in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, that Paul says, Lo, I tell you of mystery, and that is Christ dwells in our hearts. We know that Christ dwells in our heart by the Holy Spirit. We know that here he says that I tell you of mystery, that blindness has come to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So as we follow the flow of what the apostle's been saying to us, here in these three chapters, he says, God in the past sovereignly chose Israel. Israel, chapter 10, tried to obtain its own righteousness through the law. But God's plan, chapter 11, has included the Gentiles. But don't you Gentiles boast in that. Because it's by his grace that he has done that. And Israel being put aside temporarily is a benefit to you Gentiles. It is used to provoke Israel to jealousy as he extends his grace to the Gentiles. Gentiles, just those who are non-Jews. But that's no basis for conceit on our part, is it? When you read Luke chapter 14, Jesus gave a parable of the Great Supper. He gave a parable, a story of a king who prepared a, a great feast, a great supper, and said to his servants, you are to go out to those who are invited and invite them to come in and to eat at my supper. So the stewards, the servants, went out, and they came back, and they said the people aren't coming. They're all full of excuses. And when you read that parable there in Luke chapter 14, they were really bad excuses. In other words, as they were invited, there was one individual that said, I can't come to this great supper because I need to go look at some land that I just bought. Now, who looks at land or who buys land without looking at it first, right? The other one said, I can't come to the great supper because I, I bought a team of oxen and I know I need to go and test them. Well, would you buy a car without first test driving it? No, we wouldn't do that. So Paul here is summarizing what he's been declaring in chapter 11 thus far, that, that here as he says, listen, that, that blindness has come to Israel in part. But in that parable, the king would say, then I want you guys to go out by the highways and the byways and compel men to come so that my house may be filled. The invited guests had rejected the invitation. So it has now come to us Gentiles. And blindness has happened in part to Israel, not all of Israel. There's been a remnant. But blindness has come until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So what does that mean? Well, you might recall that last week, that in verse 12, there's a, a fullness for Israel. Uh, I'll read it to you again. Now, if their fall, that is Israel's, is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. So there's going to be a fullness for Israel. Verse 25, now there's a fullness of the Gentiles. In Acts chapter 15, it was James that stood up at the Jerusalem council. 
He, he would declare there as they're wondering, what are we going to tell these Gentile believers that they have to be circumcised, that they have to keep the law of Moses? And Peter would stand up and, and declare how God at first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. So, hey, don't be ignorant. Know this, that blindness has come in part. There's still a remnant through time that has been chosen by grace. You remember that a couple weeks ago in verse 5? Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant. He's talking about his countrymen according to the election of grace. And that blindness nationally is going to end when God's sovereignly chosen number of Gentiles has been saved. That's the fullness of the Gentiles. Now, is it the same as the times of the Gentiles in Luke chapter 21? And I kind of want to distinguish the two because sometimes Christians get that mixed up. It was Jesus when he was talking about the signs of the end. He, in Luke's gospel, he begins to talk about the time that the Romans are going to come in and they're going to destroy Jerusalem. They're asking him, when's the temple going to be destroyed? As Jesus was walking across the Temple Mount. And they said, look at these beautiful buildings, these beautiful stones. And Jesus said, not one stone's going to be left upon another. He would leave the Temple Mount, cross the Kidron Valley, go up to the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him and said, when is this going to happen? When's the destruction of the temples going to happen? And what's the signs of your coming at the end of the age? Because they had equated that if the temple, that magnificent building, ever got destroyed, it's got to be the end of the world. So Jesus is talking about those things. And in Luke's narrative, he would talk about, as it's recorded to us, to his disciples about how it would come a time when Jerusalem would be destroyed. That would take place in 70 A.D., we know that Titus and the Roman legions surrounded Jerusalem. They broke through the city walls. Josephus, the Jewish historian, writes that 1.1 million Jews were killed at that time. The temple was destroyed to where they ripped the temple apart, stone upon stone, and it happened exactly like Jesus said, that not one stone was left upon another. But as he's talking about that time, some nearly 40 years before it actually happened, right before he goes to the cross, he would say that the days of vengeance and all those things which are written are going to be fulfilled. And he says that when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon his people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive to all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Very fascinating. So he says, listen, Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. Not one stone's going to be left upon another at the temple, and that you're going to be taken away captive to all the nations. For 2,000 years, they're out of their homelands. They are dispersed to all the nations. And so some have looked at what he writes here in Luke chapter 21, verse 24, that, that Jerusalem's going to be trampled by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So some say that the times of the Gentiles being fulfilled happened in 1948. In other words, when Israel became a nation. After 2,000 years, they come back to their original homeland and they become a nation again. I don't think it took place in 1948. Because in 1948, up until 1967, 
Jerusalem was a divided city. They had what was called the Green Line on the east side of Jerusalem, which included the Temple Mount and where the Western Wall is. That was all under control of Jordan. That was the, the country of Jordan. Everything on the west side of Jerusalem belonged to Israel. Where we stayed last time in Israel, we stayed just a couple blocks from that Green Line, which would have been Jordan at that time. But in 1967, as many of you know, that when the Six-Day War broke out, the Israeli Defense Forces took all of Jerusalem. And something absolutely amazing happened at that time. For the very first time in 2,600 years, they sovereignly ruled over Jerusalem. Unheard of. You see, since 605 B.C., when Nebuchadnezzar came in and the Babylonian captivity would begin, Jerusalem was trampled underfoot by the Gentiles by somebody. It was the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians after that, the Grecians after that. After that was Rome at the time of Jesus. Then Rome destroyed Jerusalem for 2,000 years. They're out of their homeland. And all of a sudden, they captured the Temple Mount area where the temple used to stand. And all Jerusalem was under their hands. So people say that was the times of the Gentile. It could be that. But the times of the Gentile also could be speaking up until that time of the second coming of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to give you a little homework. You can look at this and kind of read it. And, and, and those of you who are interested in these things. But when we get to chapter 11 of the book of Revelation, that that takes place in the middle of the tribulation period. The middle of the tribulation period we know that seven final year period right prior to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Here's the thing that we need to remember when we talk about end time prophecy, that the last four verses of Daniel chapter 9 are very critical for us to understand because it lays out the, the timetable uh, concerning uh, end times. And Daniel, you need to know and understand this, Gabriel would tell him, concerning your people and your holy city. Daniel's people was the Jews and his holy city was Jerusalem. So 70 weeks or 70 periods of seven years are determined for your people and your holy city. 69 of those seven year periods have already come to pass. And at that time, Messiah is going to be cut off. He's going to be crucified in Jerusalem. There's been a gap for 2,000 years. There's still a seven year period, the 70th week of Daniel, where God is focusing on Israel once again. And we know that, as I said, that God has you know, declared in his word he's got a plan for the church. He has a plan for Israel. He does uh, plan on keeping his promises that he made to them, that Israel will go through that tribulation period, and it is spoken of. And, and we know at the end of that tribulation period that they will come to know that Jesus is their Messiah. We know that as it is spoken of, that they will be refined, they will be purified. Joel chapter 2, Zechariah chapter 12 talks about it, Zechariah chapter 13, and God will show himself strong on their behalf. And the end of the tribulations, the nations are going to surround Jerusalem. Jerusalem's going to be a cup of trembling, and then God's going to deliver her. So keep that in mind. So Israel's going to go through the tribulation period. They'll go through the fire. I believe the plan that God has for the church is that he's going to rapture us out of and away from the hour of tribulation, that promise of Revelation chapter 3, that shall come upon the whole earth to twist, 
to test those who dwell upon the earth. There's only one time that tribulation is going to come upon the whole earth, and that's the tribulation period. So I believe, as we're going to talk about on Wednesday night, the rapture of the church, that we're going to be raptured, and then the tribulation period is going to follow. And we do know that there's going to be those Gentiles that are going to be saved in the tribulation period. We will see that in chapter 7, the ministry to 144,000. So some say, well, you know, at the second coming of Jesus Christ, when all the Gentile believers come to believe, that's the fullness of the Gentiles. It could be that. Um, what is interesting in Revelation chapter 11, I'm going to read it to you. But here in the middle of the tribulation period, John is told to measure the temple. I was given a read like a measuring rod. I'll read it to you. And, and the angel stood, said, rise and measure the temple of God, the altar and those who worship there. There's no temple in Jerusalem today, is there? There has been no temple in Jerusalem for 2000 years, but they're going to rebuild the temple they're, they're in the process of doing that. And there's going to be what is called the tribulation temple. And in the middle of the tribulation period, the Antichrist is going to walk into that temple and he's going to declare himself as God to be worshiped as God, as Paul writes about there in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. So here John is told, you measure the temple. But he says something interesting, the angel to John. But leave out the court, which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. So three and a half years. So the fullness of the Gentiles could be up until the second coming of Jesus Christ, or many believe that the fullness of the Gentiles is going to be fulfilled at the rapture of the church. Could be either one. So um, I do want to say this, that if you're here and, and you're not saved, if the fullness of the Gentiles takes place, you know, that last Gentile that's going to get saved, and then the Lord's going to say, that's it, that's who I've been waiting for, the rapture of the church. So if that is the case, and you're here and you're not saved, will you please get saved today, all right, so we can get out of here. You might be the last one that the Lord is waiting for, all right? But seriously... The Lord desires for you to come to him because we are rushing towards the return of the Lord. And the rapture can happen at any time. We don't know the day or the hour, but there's going to be that time of the fullness of the Gentiles. And then as the Jews go through the tribulation period and there will be Gentiles there that will be saved, the great revival is going to happen. We will see in Revelation chapter 7. It's at that time, verse 26 and 27. You might want to underline these verses. And so all Israel will be saved as it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. You can show brothers and sisters, you can show your friends that, that have been taught the replacement theology, you can walk them through this and you can say, listen, that Paul writes that all of Israel is going to be saved at that time. The deliverer, who's the deliverer? That's Jesus Christ. He's going to come out of Zion. It's another name for Jerusalem. He's going to turn away ungodliness from Jacob. That is the term for Israel. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. In other words, that the Lord says is here Paul's quoting from the book of Isaiah, chapter 59, chapter 27, that we know that, it, that the Lord is going to keep his covenant with them. I'm going to take away their sin. 
In Matthew chapter 23, when Jesus was lamenting over Jerusalem, he said, For I say to you that you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus said that that day will come when they will recognize him as Messiah. Zechariah chapter 12, verses 10 and 11. I'll read it to you. And I will pour out on the house of David, says the Lord, and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierce. Yes, they will mourn for him as one who mourns for his only son. Now a couple notes and then we're going to move on. Paul says that all of Israel will be saved. I do not believe that every single Israeli or Jewish descent will be saved. Remember the context of the chapter is a national restoration. The book of Ezekiel, chapter 20, verses 37 and 38. When God was speaking to, about the restoration of Israel, he said, I'm going to bring you into the bond of the covenant. Jeremiah chapter 31, God said, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, the house of Judah. I will put my law on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. So Ezekiel, I'm going to bring you into the bond of the covenant. I'm going to keep my covenant with you, but I will purge the rebels from among you and those who transgress against me. But at this time, Israel as a whole is going to be saved, just as Israel as a whole today has rejected Jesus as their Messiah and Savior. And they'll be saved just as we are today, putting their faith and trust in Jesus as their Savior, Lord, and Messiah. I think it's important for us to once again understand that salvation comes to Jew and Gentile alike by calling on the name of the Lord. Because there are those that will come along and say, well, there's a dual covenant. The Jews are saved by the old covenant. We're saved by the new covenant. Listen, if we could be saved by the old covenant, then why did Jesus have to die for our sins? So we need to be careful of that. And the book of Hebrews declares to us that the old covenant was not sufficient to take away sin, the sacrifices, that Jesus is superior, that he came and died once and for all. The old covenant didn't even bring the people into the presence of God, that only the high priest was allowed to go behind the veil to the Holy of Holies. And we know that because of the blood of Jesus Christ that you and I can come into the Holy of Holies because we now have a relationship with him. So salvation, keep in mind, comes by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me. But in this chapter of Romans, I do not see Israel spiritualized as the church. We do see a distinction between Israel and the church, and I see it as a distinction that Paul is quite sensitive to. Yes, we all come by faith, he has a plan for the church. He has a plan for Israel. I believe that the church is going to be raptured before the tribulation period. Israel will go through that dark time, that great tribulation, Jesus said, such as the world has never seen or ever will see again. But at the end, right before, as Jesus comes back, they're going to open their eyes to Jesus Christ. So God's not done with Israel. In verse 28, concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. Here Paul summarizes God's dealing with Israel. Because God sovereignly chose Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as we saw in chapter 9. He loves the nation. God's going to carry through with his promises. For God's gifts, verse 29, and his call are irrevocable. His calling is sure. God has not changed his mind about Israel, nor does he change his mind 
about you. And perhaps you're here this morning or you've had seasons of your life where you think, Lord, you must be so disappointed with me because I fall short of what you want me to be. I'm not what I could be. I'm not what I should be. And I've blown it and I've failed. God, you must be through with me. Your promises are no longer for me. And maybe at one time, yes, you heard the calling of God to follow him and be submitted to him. You think, why should I even bother? Why should I even bother to do that? He, he must be just so disappointed in me. You feel like a spiritual waste. And we can know that we can always turn to him and that his love is ready there to receive us. And I want you to know this. And remember, if you remember anything today, it's this, that the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. You know, there's been seasons in my life, there's been times where I think, Lord, do you really want to use me? Am I being used? I don't think I'm doing any good. I kind of stumble and stutter my way through, you know, the teachings. I... You know, I don't know if I'm making a difference. And Lord, I just feel like sometimes just packing it in and giving up. And I got to remember that the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. I think there'd be so many other people that would be so much better to pastor this church. I think, you know, it'd be better for me if I just went to Wyoming, grew a big bushy beard, got a flatbed truck with a dog on the back and just, you know, go fishing and waddle around and, you know, go rock hunting and stuff. I, I, I have those thoughts. But Jeff, the gifts and callings that I have are irrevocable. You know, Peter found that to be true. And during Holy Week, as we talk about Jesus in that upper room and that, how he got arrested and went to the cross and you know in that upper room discourse that we have reported in the gospel narratives that there's Jesus talking to his disciples and he says, listen, one of you is going to betray me. One of you is going to deny me. All of you are going to be made to run away from me because this night, because of me. And, and Peter stands up and he says, not me, Lord. Not me. I'll stand by you. I'll even die for you. I'll never deny you. Oh, Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows twice this night. And they go to the garden there, and there comes Judas, the betrayer, that leads a detachment of troops, and they come to arrest Jesus, and all the disciples split. They all run away. They bring Jesus to Caiaphas' house there to the religious leaders. They put him on trial. And there in the courtyard of Caiaphas, people are outside. They got a fire, and Peter's following from a distance, and he comes into the courtyard, and he's warming himself at the fire. Meantime, inside, they condemn Jesus to death, and, and they put a bag over his face. They blindfolded him, and they punched him out. They hit him. They spit on him. This is the religious leaders. They, they would mock him and say, prophesy who's hitting you. 
While that's going on outside, a couple of people come up to Peter and said, you're one of them, aren't you? You're one of his disciples. And he began to curse and swear and deny. I don't know the man. And finally, the third time, a little girl comes up to him and says, you're one of them. You're one of those followers. And here's Peter. He's cursing and swearing. Blankety blank. I don't know the man. I don't know what you're talking about. And Luke's gospel tells us at that time that Jesus looked at Peter. In other words, as Jesus comes out, he's black and he's blue and he's bleeding. And the doors of Caiaphas open up and there is Jesus hearing Peter swearing and, and denying. And all of a sudden the sound of the rooster and Jesus looked at Peter, it says, and Peter broke when that happened. And when the Lord looked at Peter, I don't think it was a look of anger or hate. I think it was a look of love. And it says that Peter wept bitterly and he runs away. And we know that after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and I love the compassion and the gentleness of our Lord, when the message came that I'm alive, you go tell the disciples and Peter, especially Peter, you've got to tell them that I am alive. I'll meet you in Galilee. Well, Peter, he figures, I'm just going to go fishing. I'm going to go back and do what I used to do. He thought that he had severed his relationship with the Lord forever. I denied the Lord. How could I ever be used again? And you know the story of John chapter 21, that there they are fishing all night long, and they're fishing, and all of a sudden somebody calls from the shore, hey, have you caught any fish, children? I love the tenderness of our Lord. He didn't say, have you caught any fish, you rebels? You disobedient, you know, disciples? You guys that are, you know, cowards and all of this? Ex-apostles? He said, hey, have you caught any fish, children? Then the first miracle of the chapter happened. They said, no, we haven't. A fisherman telling the truth. So Jesus would cry out to them, and he would say to them, throw your net on the right side. And of course, the net filled up with fish. Peter says, I know who that is. It's Jesus. I've been through this with him before. He dives in the water, and he wash, you know, swims up to shore, and there's Jesus. He has a fire going. He has fish that he's cooking. And he begins to minister to Peter. He says, Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep, tend my sheep. You know what the interesting thing is? The very thing that they were striving for and working for and trying to accomplish all night long, Jesus had all along. So here's the thing. When we feel like just kind of throwing in the towel, we feel like giving up. Lord, you must be through, disgusted with me. So we go on our excursions. We try to live our own life, do our own thing. What's the use? We're looking for real purpose and fulfillment and satisfaction in life. We're looking for that peace, that comfort. And you can go and try to find it in the world or doing your own thing. But would you remember this? You'll never find it in the world. 
And you'll never find it ultimately doing your own thing. And the very thing that you're looking for, Jesus has. And he desires to give it to you freely. Peter, go and feed my sheep. I'm not done with you. And it would be a few days after that that Peter's back in Jerusalem and he stands up and he preaches and 3,000 got saved. Didn't I tell you, Peter, I said I'm going to make you a fisher of men. I haven't changed my mind. And Peter would stand up, 3,000 getting saved. And, and that's quite a haul, isn't it? A good catch. But Peter, I'm not done with you and he's not done with you. And he's done, not done with me. And you know, sources tell us that they, in the early days, used to mock Peter. You know how they mocked him when he was preaching in Jerusalem? By the sound of a rooster. And you're going to hear the rooster crowing in your ear, the enemy, and those who will discourage you. But I want you to stand on this promise. And it's for me as well that the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. He desires to use you. He desires to minister through you. He's not done with you. And if you're wondering if that's the case, know this. If there's anything in your life that's not right, then repent, get right with Jesus, and know that his forgiveness and his love remains, and he will work in your life. For as you were once disobedient to God, verse 30, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience. Even so, these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, that they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. Oh, the depth, verse 33, the riches of both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor or who has first given to him as it shall be repaid to him. So the last three chapters, listen, we're going to close. Oh, Romans, we've been looking at the ways of God. We've discussed his calling, his election, his sovereignty. Those are difficult concepts to understand. We try to reconcile divine sovereignty and human responsibility, election versus free will, and it causes confusion, debate, as I've said, arguing. But the thing to remember that it is humanly impossible to know completely the mind of God, the sovereignty of God. The riches and the knowledge of wisdom of God are unsearchable, is what we read. And Paul just breaks out and prays over that and reflects as he quotes from, again, Isaiah, from Job as well. The wisdom, uh, the knowledge of God is so rich and unsearchable uh, that is past finding out. And I've quoted before from J.B. Philip that said, if God was small enough to figure out, he wouldn't be big enough to worship. So we spend all this time reading and studying and wondering and arguing. But there are some things that we're just not going to fully understand because he's infinite. He's all powerful and he is way above us and his ways are above our ways. His ways are past finding out, Isaiah declares. Such knowledge and wisdom is too much for me. How can I understand the mind of God? There are things that we can understand. His love for us, his provision of salvation, all these things that we've been studying going through this book. But here he asks an interesting question. He says, so who has become his counselor? I got to admit that there's been times in my life 
that I have. That I've been the Lord's counselor. We can give him our desires. We can give him our supplications. We can give him our wants, our needs. But I've been his counselor. Lord, this is what you should do. Lord, and you should do it now. And don't you see what's going on, Lord? I need to give you some counsel and, and fill in the gaps and, and get you up to speed at what's going on. I've been his counselor. And unfortunately, I forget that he sees and he hears and he knows. And he's so wonderful and he's so good. And he is my salvation and provider and he's the wonderful counselor. And that I can trust and rest in him, in his promises. He has me. And being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in us will bring it to completion. He will complete that, which concerns me. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. So, Father, we thank you for this time in your word. I thank you that, Lord, it's so incredible. Your promises, your provision, your love for us. And, Lord, that... Um, we can rejoice that your love was proven by sending your son to die on the cross of Calvary. So I do want to pray this morning, if there's anyone here listening to this message, you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, that the invitation is to come. Today is the day of salvation. He is your salvation. There's none other. The greatest need of any man or any woman is to be forgiven of sin. And Jesus went to the cross to be the propitiation, the satisfaction, to make atonement for your sins. There's none other. No one else died for you. No one else conquered sin and death by rising from the grave, only Jesus. He proved he's the Son of God. And as Paul would write in chapter 10 here, that whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Will you come? Be forgiven. Turn to Jesus. Surrender your life to him. Call upon him right where you are, that Jesus, I come to you and I ask that you would forgive me of my sins. I haven't been perfect and I confess that I'm a sinner and need of forgiveness. Forgive me. I believe you died on the cross for me. I believe you're alive. You rose again. You're speaking to my heart and I ask that you would be my personal Lord and Savior. This is now my gospel and I thank you for loving me and I thank you for providing forgiveness and salvation through faith. And I thank you for this newness of life. And I thank you for this new beginning. And I want to know you and walk with you all the days of my life. And I'm so grateful that now I can cry out, Abba, Father, because I belong to you. In Jesus' name. And listen, if anybody prayed that prayer this morning, as we have a prayer team up front, come up and tell them the decision you made. But, but for all of us, may we remember this, that God is so faithful. And the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. So I pray that we would always turn to you and trust in you and rest in your promises, Lord. Continue to draw us to yourself. In this season of spring, may there be a newness in our hearts. 
new life, breathe that new life in us. And we may walk after you and know you, be used of you. Bless everyone here as we go our way now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Would you please?